Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Data has a lot of power and equity seems to be like a broad word that we feel like, oh, I don't have a relationship with that word, but we really do. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Kila. Today, I'm interviewing Mina Das. Mina is a data consultant and workshop facilitator specializing in ethical data practices. Mina's experience as a first-generation immigrant from India has informed her passion for promoting transparency and ethics in data-driven initiatives within the nonprofit sector. With over 15 years of experience in technology and nonprofit industries, Mina has developed a unique approach that encourages organizations to be more intentional, purpose-driven, and conscious in their use of data science and AI. Her workshops cover a range of topics, including data equity and centering humans and algorithms. Through her own experiences of feeling powerless and vulnerable when in the data of powerful organizations, Mina found an unexpected passion for exploring the importance of data transparency and ethics. Fueled by her commitment to data equity, Mina has dedicated much of her career to helping others understand the need for more human approaches to data, and she is sharing all of that insight with you right now. So let's dive in so you can meet Mina. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Mina Das. Mina, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you so much, Mallory, for having me here. I'm so excited. I've been following your work on Instagram and LinkedIn, and it kind of feels really happy to be here and talking to you. Likewise, I've been such a fan of everything that you put out um, for so long, and so it feels long overdue that we're having this conversation. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you and your work and what brings you to, to our conversation today? So I am Mina Das. My pronouns are she, her, and hers for anybody listening. I am joining from beautiful Vancouver, BC. Uh, which is like two hours up from Seattle where I was before. So anybody listening from Seattle know that I'm saying hi, the big waves, you know, and very happy. I am a first generation immigrant from India. I moved to North America about six years ago. The work that I am doing right now for the nonprofits is that of being a consultant and a workshop facilitator with a focus on how can we do good with data. I consider data as the salt of everything that we do, but we often mistake it as being the sugar. That means what I mean by that is everything has to end with data. How can we collect more data? We have this hyper attention 
to bring more data. And I want our nonprofits to be more purpose-driven, to be more intentional, to be more conscious in that wherever they are using data, data science, AI, all these terms that can make somebody oral. So that's the focus of my work. The way it translates is in terms of consulting for fundraisers and their campaigns and non-campaign activities. It also translates into my workshops. How can you advance data equity in collection? How can you center humans in algorithms? All those kind of live workshops. So that is my work as a today. Amazing. Okay, there's so many elements of your work that I want to talk about today, but can we start with the data equity piece? Will you tell us a little bit about what does it look like to be centering equity in data collection and perhaps what are some of the things that unconsciously or perhaps sometimes consciously people don't realize about when you're not conscientiously centering equity, what happens? That's a great question and kind of the whole piece of my workshop. So I'm going to probably pick an example and share what it means to me. And I always say this with everything that I offer through my consulting and workshops is none of this is permanent. So we are going to be learning. I'm going to be learning with my participants. They're going to be learning through me and we are going to keep building on this. So whatever I'm sharing right now for all the listeners, know that your own experience and expertise, lived and learned experiences are going to influence this response. So let's take an example. I have a grocery store next to my home. And right now where I'm living here, and I'm sure it's true for every place, we have this food insecurity issue going on. And we have forms from that grocery store and those biggest vendors who provide food to the store. We have forms here for every family to fill on telling what else do they need in terms of managing the food bills that every household has and what are their needs. It's a pretty simple form with five questions. What are your needs around food? What do you usually buy? Do you get everything you need? All those kind of questions. But it is very interesting because it also asks questions about my background, where I'm coming from, a little bit about my identity. And the funny thing is, it's a one paper form with seven questions, a heading at the top, who is doing that kind of questionnaire. But I have no idea otherwise what is going to happen with that form? That one little piece of paper is my interaction with a corporation, with a big organization out there somewhere whose name I am not entirely sure, whose role I'm not entirely sure in the community. But I do know that they want some of my data about my identity, about the patterns my family and household is dealing with around food. They want that information, but I don't know what happens with that information? Nobody asked me when they were designing these questions to say, are you comfortable sharing about your identity? So what usually happens, and I'm kind of a nerdy, curious person, so I stand across that little desk for a little table for a few minutes every time I go to that store and see what else people are filling up there. So they leave a lot of questions just when I, while I'm filling out my form, people leave a lot of questions like unanswered and they just send it back. That is the issue, and that is the power of the data. That one little piece of paper of seven questions, that is our interaction with the window to an entire organization, to their beliefs, to their practices, to their culture. What could happen through that little form is building more transparency. It could have happened that and they could have given, here is a link, go learn more here, or here are four reasons we are asking you these questions. 
Or there could be a person standing there, again, an example, who could say, the person who's filling the form, if you have questions, ask me now. This is what is going to happen to your data. If I'm asking you about your identity, which is so personal, here is how we are going to look at it in different ways to see how can we impact and provide a solution for food insecurity in our local community. So when it comes to data equity, data has a lot of power. And equity seems to be like a broad word that we feel like, oh, I don't have a relationship with that word. But we really do. And it just starts with being super simplistically speaking, being human in our ways in which we deal with these things. And I happen to deal with data. And so I talk a lot about building transparency and ethics and how do you deal with it? How do you build trust around data? It's Super easy to create a seven question survey and send it out and then hope that I get an amazing response rate. But there goes a lot of things around it that makes it equitable. So it's kind of a long way, example driven response to say what data equity could look like in your world or should look like. I love that you walked us through that with an example. And I'm curious, like at the beginning, you said we think that data is the sugar, but really it's the salt. And you were talking about how nonprofits want to collect more and more data, but what's the point and how is it being used and how do we be more intentional with it? Tim Lockie on a recent interview shared one of his transformative moments in his career was when he learned that 90% of nonprofits were collecting data, only 5% of nonprofits were using data. So talk to us a little bit about this intentionality around data collection, because I feel like there's probably this thread between that and the data equity piece that's really important. Because when I hear you talk about that, like anyone can send a survey out to collect seven questions, I'm kind of like, yeah. And I guess when we're just in data collection mode, we're not really thinking about the whole human experience around collecting that data, both in the acquiring it and in the using it ways. So talk to us a little bit about how you think about that. Can I offer one of my personal life experiences here? Because that was my pivotal moment. (laughs) Wonderful. This was my pivotal moment. So I worked in the tech and nonprofit industry for almost 15 years before I turned into doing my own consulting work. And probably this, what I'm about to share, is this the pivotal moment for me when I decided, okay, I need to take a step differently in my career. So six years ago, I moved from Florida to Seattle to continue my job still in the tech. I was a program manager, compliance and metrics and building dashboards, all that kind of work. And three months into the job, I met an accident. I fell on the floor of the cafeteria and lost my teeth. Anyway, long story short, two months after that accident, the actual processing started. Who would be paying for all that care for the surgeries? It became a whole thing that I fell in the cafeteria. So would my organization be paying or would the cafeteria vendor be paying? And it became kind of a thing. Now, the city, city of Seattle, Labor's department came up and they said, we heard that an accident happened. So here is your case number, a nine digit number. Use it to call us if you need anything. So and so blah, 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 blah. It didn't help me enough because it was sort of the technicalities without going into it. I had lost my teeth, so I needed more support around my dental needs. And of course, the emotional well-being and the trauma of coming out of that. 
So I decided, okay, I need some legal support in this situation. So I started to reach out to the lawyers in the city. And the lawyers said, okay, you are an immigrant, alien resident, F1E80. This was your visa status. There is only so much. These are the two or three minimal possibilities that we can do. There isn't much we can do because your visa status only stays live for the next two years. So you don't have a lot of time on your visa to be here in the country. So here I was, I came back with all this information to my home. It was a lot of other emotional things that we can, of course, unpack in a separate call. But here I was sitting with two data points, one with the labor department, nine digit case number that comes with some, of course, some, these are the seven things you can do or 10 things you can do if you are in the database of the labor department. On the other hand, I was this visa status ID, that your visa status, F and EAD, it comes with some of these rights and some of these things that you can do. But neither of them were giving me enough power to do something about my situation. I didn't have family. I didn't have a big circle of people that I could look for support right then. Of course, I had the people who helped me in my job and my you know, work family. But I'm talking about the people you look for instantly when you need urgent care. And these being to a data point in these two really important databases, one is the U.S. government, the visa status, the other is the labor department, I still felt pretty powerless and vulnerable. And that made me realize that being collected in the data in powerful databases, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have the power to help your situation. You still can feel vulnerable. You still can feel powerless. And that made me feel, what does it mean to be living in data? What does it mean to be citizen of data, to be on the other side, not to be the collector, but to be the ones who are in the data? And the reality is all of us are being in the data. I mean, Mallory, you might have used different systems by now. You might be using a watch, you might be using apps, and you might already be collected in those data points already. So what does it mean? That moment, that one life incident became the reason for me to keep exploring this question. What does it mean to be in the data? What does it mean to pursue data equity? Wow. Thank you for sharing that story with us. I'm so sorry to hear about how that happened. And one of the things I so appreciate about you is just how you humanize everything, because I think as someone who grew up personally with a lot of limiting beliefs around how good I was at math or understanding numbers. I think I've had a lot of resistance throughout my career to even the term data. And it's taken a lot of people like you basically reminding me, you interact with data every day and you use data effectively every day. And there are probably ways that you are not using your data effectively enough, but really helping build my openness to my ability to interact with data. I think it's such an important part of how you teach this. And so I'm curious, like, when folks start to dip their toe in, into being more intentional around their data, what is some things for them to understand? And I'm thinking about this particularly as it relates to data hygiene, but also I think maybe from the data equity position as well, there are people who are so concerned about how they've historically collected data that it feels really overwhelming to improve it or to do things differently or make corrections? Or if we correct the way we collect this data, then what does that mean for all the data we've collected up to this point? So can you talk to us a little bit about 
how you guide folks to start that journey? It's such an important question. And I'm going to probably give the feelings response to this, as opposed to telling use these tools and use these five-step framework. It could be really overwhelming when you are starting to all of a sudden see that actually I always had this relationship with data and now I'm asked, being asked to own this relationship. What does that mean? And let me give an example. So I remember one of your posts was about how you want to support fundraisers, not to just think about that it's all about raising money, but there is this emotional component into understanding themselves as humans. And I remember taking a piece of it many weeks ago. I've been following you for like almost a year now. So I took like a piece of that and I wanted to explore what's my relationship with the word money. I'm giving this example and I'm going to tie it back to the data question. I wanted to explore what is my relationship with money. I don't know if I told this before. I don't think so, but I'm a certified life coach as well. So I do a lot of coaching on myself before I turn them into my services and my clients and everything. So I sat down on a weekend with a piece of paper and pencil and started to scribble. And I made myself coach to myself through that whole exercise of, okay, three feelings. All of a sudden, when I hear the word money, what is it? Go three words. And then I would dig deeper. Where is it coming from? Is it my culture? Is it my upbringing? Is it my experiences of being in a different country, navigating a different culture? Is it my need for standing out or fitting in? What is it that is bringing all these feelings for money? I want people listening to this podcast to take that experience and turn it when it comes to data. Think about what do you feel when you hear the word data? Start there. What are the three things you feel? And start exploring that. Keep digging. Is it the overwhelming feeling? Is it the scary? The chances are the most people around us are part of two camps. They say, oh, I'm not a data person. Oh, no, no, that is more of Nina's job. Or there are people who say, we love data. We are so enthusiastic about it. Let's see what else can we do with it. I want everybody listening to this to find a balanced, sustainable relationship with this word, data. And for that to happen, you need to sit down with a piece of paper, first individually and then with your team to think, what are your feelings about data? And then start digging deeper. Is it the overwhelm because of your database and the organization that is too messy right now for you to navigate individually? Is it something that you need to access more understanding to ask better questions around data, to engage with your external and internal stakeholders with your data better? What do you need to improve that relationship with that word data? That comes the second piece. First, it needs to have happened that acknowledgement of what do I feel? about this word data. And I would say this out loud too, I have been an advocate for this for quite some time. We do these strategic planning in our organizations, in our nonprofits, these amazing two-day, three-day retreat kind of thing. I want everybody to include a little portion of time to build data values. Every five-year, three-year, whenever you are doing strategic planning, you have your entire organization around the table next to you, sitting next to you, Use that time a little bit to talk about what are our data values? How do we want to look at data? If we see a report coming out of an AI tool saying these are our top prospects, how do we want to react to that? Do we want to all to be just happy and giddy and take that one pager, print it and start using it? 
Or do we also want to, at times, question a few things for the sake of the ethics of it, saying, where's this data coming from? Or what is the underlying formula that made person A to be at the top of the list versus person E when I have seen the person E to be just as engaged in my personal experience? How do we tally that personal experience with the data 2 plus 2? Use that in building those data values when you're talking about strategic planning. I want organizations to start there, to start exploring their feelings about data before people like me can say, okay, here are five tools, go use it. Tools can come next. But your feelings, that's what makes it sustainable. Okay, can we talk about that feeling piece related to data hygiene? And this is something I talked about with Tim Lockie too, but I think he might have a slightly different orientation around this, which is I feel like because data hygiene, we hear these terms like, okay, this is kind of a weird story, but somebody was at my house yesterday and they said, please tell me your house isn't normally this clean. And I said, I live in a pretty small home. And so we can't have stuff everywhere because you would trip over it. Like everything would be in your way. And we live in the Bay Area, in a city, like in smaller environments. And so I was like, I guess like it sort of is this clean, but I don't think of myself as like a neat freak by any means or a super clean person. It's just because of the utility of the space, we can't really leave stuff out on the floor, even though we have a little one. And so I feel like data hygiene is sort of similar, like what clean data looks like or means for different organizations, given the complexity of their organization, given the different ways data is coming in, like there's no standard around like this is clean data. And so when that relates to like how we evaluate, do we have good data hygiene? I worry that what we resort to is our feelings about whether or not we have good data hygiene, and we never sort of feel like our data is clean enough. So how does this start with our feelings, help people explore how they can define some of these things for their own organizations? Before I jump into the responding part, let me tell you, I'm a person who keeps my apartment super clean too. Again, I wouldn't say I'm a super clean freak, but I have definitely had those conversations with, you know, I would have my Zoom open and people would be like, oh my gosh, your room looks so clean. Is it always this case or did you do it for me because we were having a phone chat? But I would say... I have a reason why I keep my home super clean. Like you said, you know, you would trip. And for me, that reason particularly is because I get a lot of energy by clean. One, I get a lot of energy by cleaning. I love to clean because it gives me ideas. And two, after the post-cleaning room, that gives me energy, the light, the air, the freshness. It gives me ideas to think about what next could I be doing next week. This is something I could be doing for home. This is something I could be doing for work. It's kind of the same thing with the data. And you are absolutely right. How that data hygiene looks like, it's going to change nonprofit to nonprofit, organization to organization, context to context. It's not, there is no standard these 10 days. I am really not a big fan of the word best practices because best practices kind of make you want to compare to some standard. You, all you need to be comparing yourself to how you have grown since last year or since last month or in the last six months, where you were, that's all the comparison that needs to happen. There doesn't need to happen like a standard of any sort. So your context is what matters the most in designing what are the best practices for you. That's number one. Number two, when it comes to data hygiene, 
just like how I take my personal apartment hygiene and I have a reason why I need to clean it up so that I can do something. I want that thinking for nonprofits to adopt. The intentionality, the purpose. Data cleaning could look a certain way for organization A and a certain different way for organization B. But that cleaned way, whatever that hygiene looks like, whether it's a four-template Excel spreadsheet or a tool with neat little different tabs, is it allowing you to do the work that you want to do in the best possible way, in the most sustainable way, in your physical, emotional, overall well-being, which is basically to be building relationships with our community and to be doing our work, are we able to do that or not? If you have made a seven-page Excel spreadsheet, which is super complicated, super nuanced, it could be gaming 100 on 100 on some standard of best practices. But if it is not sustainable for you, if it is not allowing you to do your best work, but instead adding more complexity, it's not helping you. It's no good to be that kind of a data hygiene. It's also no good to be dumping everything on seven to 10 sheets of paper on your table when you don't, you're scrabbling to find who am I going to talk next and what am I going to talk next. So it has to have a purpose. The hygiene has to have a purpose. You need to be able to visualize what are the outcomes you want to achieve when you have gotten your cleaned data in front of you. And once that kind of visualization happens, like I can visualize that I can actually scribble more on my notebook and journal more on the corner of my floor with my favorite pillows. Once you can visualize the kind of things you can do for your community, for your people, you can easily backtrack and see, okay, are we doing enough or are we going to need to do more here in terms of the hygiene? It really has to connect with a purpose. Why are we doing it? As long as we have a why, as long as we have a reason, we are good. I kind of asked this before, but it's coming full circle for me as we are talking about this element too. When we think about this piece from a data equity perspective, when we aren't considering or thinking about data equity, when we're a little bit more in the nitty gritty, what traps does an organization fall into and then sort of end up collecting data that is inequitable or biased, or they can't even ultimately use it the way that they want to because they didn't design around that from the beginning, or maybe they do use it and then it leads to some other unintended outcomes because it's become a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. I will pick an example from community surveys. My favorite, that's the piece I do a lot of consulting work with the organizations. And one of the most common things I've seen around surveys is organizations want to collect the social identity data in their surveys. And then they have this, I wouldn't say this became kind of a trend, but it kind of became like a trend in most of my projects where after 2020, when this when the world was having this racial justice awakening sort of a thing that, oh, we need to know about who is in our community. And so every nonprofit I was working with started wanted me to include seven to 10 to 15 questions of social identity. What languages do you speak? Your race, ethnicity, what's your representation? And I wouldn't say it was out of any kind of a malicious intent. It was mostly to know who is in our community and are we serving the right communities? Do we need to expand our reach? Those kind of questions. They were coming from a good place, 
but it was one of those traps where most organizations were falling. Like just asking the questions by doing some research on what are the race and ethnicity options. That's the most common trap that most nonprofits get into when they're collecting this data. Instead, what I do suggest for them to happen to, to use this opportunity as is number one, again, going back to the purpose piece, define your why. Why do you want to collect the social identity information, for example, for your equity piece, for your data equity piece? If you want to collect it, it needs to be more than I want to know who is in my community. That's not enough reason for you to, you know, you wouldn't jump on a bus and ask a stranger for 15 things about their personal social identity <laughs> just because you want to know who's on the bus. Mm. You would have to build that kind of a relationship where you can ask questions and then define which questions you want to ask. Like if you're asking which languages do you speak, if you don't have an associated action with that question, it has no meaning to be asked. You are only adding more burden to someone who is going to take that survey. So the first piece was building very laser-focused intentionality around the questions that were being asked. That was one way for me to address that trap the most nonprofits were getting into of asking, just asking more questions. The second one was definitely associating an action with every question that was being asked on those community surveys, including the social identity questions. So if you're asking for your, uh, please share your pronouns, I would ask them, what would you be doing with your pronouns? Are you going to be generating name tags with those in your galas? And then you need to write them on the surveys to give an example under every social identity question to say, example, I'm asking this because so that the person who is reading it, they get to know that what is the transparency piece behind it, that what would they do with this information? That kind of, that's the second piece where I tried to address that gap. And the third is the common, one of the other things that I always push my nonprofits to do is bring your community even when you are asking the questions. Oftentimes when we design the surveys, the way those surveys come to happen is either the questions were always being asked, the questions are sitting on a dry folder of the nonprofit or external consultants and a few internal stakeholders would come together and design a question. But a much better way is to include your community right in it when you are designing your questions to say, what else should I be asking? Now, it can very much happen that a nonprofit would say, but I don't know who should I include in my question design part, which is totally okay. If you don't have an idea of who you should be including, ask a question in the survey itself. What else should I be asking or what else should we be asking you? to be accomplishing this outcome from this study, from this project. So it builds transparency. It gives an opportunity to the community to feel, okay, I'm not just a chaos where I would be giving information, but I am somebody who they want to listen. And those are the few things, and there are many more, without turning this call into a workshop, but there are many more other things that we can do into making our community feel like a community and not like the box step from where we're always going to be excavating some more information. First, T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. 
It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. You know, I just had a experience recently where someone was collecting some data for me and the fields that I could fill out didn't even allow enough space for my answers to things like they were asking identity questions. And some of them, it was like my name didn't fully fit or something. And so what you're talking about also just has me reflecting on the flip side of around making sure that the questions you're asking, you have ways to legitimately capture all of the answers. And I don't know if you have suggestions for how folks think about that beyond just sort of the space in a text form, but I'm thinking about making sure, like, how do people feel when they're using identity categories and then there's an other category? Like, what are ways to make that feel better for folks? Or are there any suggestions around how we can make those types of things as inclusive as possible? Absolutely. I want to give two things in this response. One is never use the word other. Other kind of instantly alienates your audience. And imagine if you would be reading the questionnaire or a survey and all of a sudden you feel like, oh, there are seven responses to this ethnicity. I fall under none. And then there's this word other. And it could almost instantly make you feel, why am I other? I am just a human being with my identity like any other human being on this planet, and why should I be other? So other can cause that alienation. Instead, you can choose an identity not listed. That could be a way to state that, an identity not listed. And then you can have like a little open-ended text placeholder for somebody to respond to that. The other thing that I want to offer is always include prefer not to respond. A lot of organizations avoid using prefer not to respond, almost saying, oh, I'm not making this question mandatory. So do I really need to offer this? Yes, you do. Because saying explicitly prefer not to respond is in a subtle way, tell your audience that the power lies with you as the person who is responding to the survey. You can still choose and say, I don't want to give this response to you by taking prefer not to respond. So you want to offer that kind of power to the people whose data we are collecting and prefer not to respond is an easy way to make them feel that they hold that kind of power. And those two things, other than the fact that, yes, we do need to have a human language, we do need to build transparency, we do need to build trust, other than all those things. But these are the two very concrete examples that can instantly make someone feel heard, seen, listened. Yeah, I really appreciate that advice. And I've been having a lot of conversations about donor personas recently, and I have been grappling a little bit with the fact that we know that one of the main reasons people give is because of identity giving. And so if we are segmenting donor lists and we are there's a lot of of value, I think, both to the organization, but also to the donor of feeling really spoken to from your core identity and not in a manipulative way, but I think making sure that you are 
really seeing, and not that any single identity category is a monolith, but I was explaining that, you know, I'm Jewish. And when I get something from an organization that says happy Hanukkah, like it does feel nice. Now, does it mean I don't want to be invited to the Christmas party? No, I still want to be invited to the Christmas party. But it does feel nice to like have my identity reflected back to me. And so it's been making me think about this line in this donor persona. Like I think historically, there's been a lot of problematic ways in which we've classified donors that have made assumptions about certain groups of donors that have really left people out. And I've been thinking donor personas being more about like who you are and what you care about versus who you're not and what you're not capable of or what you shouldn't be included in. And I'm just curious, like, how do you thread that needle? And what are ways for us to be thinking about this data equity piece as we create segments of donors in ways that are intended to help them feel like we see them? I would say the way I have been approaching this question, maybe in a little bit of a slightly different language, is how do we analyze intersectionality, which is the same thing. You know, we have these seven to eight different data points and all of them put together makes us who we are. So, for example, there could be three people who are, let's say, Indian immigrants as the audience of a survey or the audience of a nonprofit. And two of them came to states, let's say, in 1970 and 1990. And I came six or seven years ago. It's a even though we shared a little bit of the background, that we are still multi-generational, different ages of the immigrant that we are. So should we be approached in the same way? No, because our whole story, the whole context is different. My challenges and my barriers are different than what someone who moved here in 78. So what are those differences? Those differences is what is called the intersectionality. It's like our whole context is our whole story. And the question when it comes back to data and donor personas is, how do we look at that? How do we look at that full story, the full picture when we are looking at it? And I'll give an example from a survey that I just finished analyzing. What we did was we had like these eight to 10 different components about the identity. Like the survey was being done with different EDs and director developments as part of a sector kind of a survey. And the question was, is your mission led by, so you're a person of color and your community background, that kind of a question. And then there was a question, who are the communities you serve? So there was like a checkbox of a lot of different communities, marginalized communities you serve. And then there were other race, ethnicity questions as well. Now, when we started to look at the trends pieces around revenue and operations of the organizations led by these EVs versus their identity, the question came up, how do we look at it? Should we be making some charts? Should we be looking at one or two components? Should we be looking at the marginalized communities they serve? Or if they belong to those communities themselves, it's led by BIPOC leaders. There were a lot of different lenses that could be adopted in creating those personas. And we did two things, which I usually do in most projects, and I kind of repeat the same thing. It, again, going back to my favorite word, purpose and intention. So point number one, even if you have got this rich data set, it has to begin with what are the kind of actions you want to take from the report, not just looking at the data, but what are the kind of things you want to do, why you want to do. So if you want to support 
the women-led BIPOC entrepreneurs or something like that, that's your why, that's your context. So now you bring it back into your research. Now you bring it back into your analysis of creating those personas. So it has to first, number one, it has to start with the context. You need to have some why, what are you going to be doing with those things? And then we decided, okay, let's scrap that chart piece because charts could really give you half picture. So let's try those old school tables. And we listed it out on an Excel spreadsheet with those seven, eight components of identity related things. We turned it, so I'm not going to be super geeky into how we did that, but I would say on an Excel spreadsheet, we listed out those seven, eight things, which were the key identity questions out of it. So race, ethnicity, the community served, the communities led by leadership, all those at the top. And then we cross-tapped it against some of these trends of operations and revenue and HR and budgeting, all those kind of things, the trends pieces. And that is how we started to take our steps into strategy and decision making from that analysis to understand, okay, this is the whole story, that whole one line of that Excel spreadsheet for the revenue of the organizations. Okay, this is what it looks like when you think of that this is the revenue, this is the community they're serving, this is their background, this is their operating budget, or so and so, and blah, 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 blah. So my point is listing it out in a table with all the possible identity factors allowed us to look at the complete story as opposed to taking one element, let's say ethnicity, and placing it on a bar chart and saying, okay, what is the ethnicity piece? Or placing it on a Word document and the donor persona and say, okay, one more element, this is ethnicity of so-and-so background population, this is what it looks like to be engaging them. Instead of doing that, we started with having more team conversations, listing it out on like old school table to see how can we see the full picture, the full context, the full story of everything that makes us who we are, which is basically all those seven, eight components. So I would say if you're thinking of donor personas, think about how can you look at the whole picture, the whole story, and then think about what are you going to do with it? What's your purpose? What's your intention behind wanting to look at that whole story? I really appreciate that. And I'm also thinking about, is there ever a time when it's okay to use a piece of an identity, but you are acknowledging that it's just a piece? So I'm thinking about this for my own identity. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors, the Hungarian immigrants, refugees. And so if I got an email from an organization that said, we know like as a descendant of refugees, like you might want to hear about some recent stories of folks who have joined or who have been brought into homes because of this organization. And some of these people have Hungarian descent. And so we wanted to invite everyone we know, you know, comes from got to the US through Hungarian refugees, we wanted to invite you to a special call to get to meet them. Obviously, I don't have the same history or culture even as everyone who shares that piece of my identity with me. But I think something like that would still make me feel really seen. And like, that is something I would feel maybe more inclined to go to than something that was more general. What do you think about that? That doesn't involve that intersectionality, that segmentation, but it also sort of acknowledges like, this is why you're being contacted about this, because we know this one piece about you. And we thought that might mean that you're interested in this. Is that okay? I think it is absolutely okay. And I'm going to add one more piece to it. 
think trust and transparency. It is okay to use one data point and while acknowledging that there is so much more to your identity than we are bringing up in this email. And at the same time, I want these organizations to add one more paragraph connecting why they thought reaching out to you is going to be helpful in that story because that is what builds that trust. That is what that builds that authenticity, that voice of the organization. You know, if I'm getting an email from an EV saying, okay, we think you could be helping us out with all the newcomers coming from India for this and this and this reason, because this is a holy celebration coming up or a Diwali celebration coming up. I will also want like one more paragraph, just like I would want a paragraph for when an email reaches to you saying, we acknowledge this one line. We acknowledge that your identity is much more complex than we have in our data. But knowing that you share this background, it would mean so and so and so, whatever their reason is in their words to say that is what builds that transparency. That is what it builds that trust. Now you have the option and choice to say, no, I don't relate to that from my upbringing. And so I am choosing not to attend. But without that transparency and missing context from the organization, there is a huge potential that you may form your own assumptions and you may alienate yourself from that organization. So that piece is really important in make building that authentic voice in how you can use one data point that's okay while acknowledging others, but how you navigate that, how you push that, that's what builds the transparency across the audience. Okay, that is such good advice. Is there anything else you want to make sure you leave folks with today and then tell them where they can find you, where they can follow along and learn from you? So one thing that I want to leave people with Don't be afraid of data and don't be afraid of data collection. And I mean intentional data collection. When I use the words data equity, I have seen people all of a sudden going, feeling scared and overwhelmed and feeling, can I even do this? Should I even do this? But this is all an evolving process. You just need to take like the first step and then you're going to iteratively learn one step after the other on how you can be doing good with data. So don't hesitate to take that first step. And if you aren't hesitant to take that first step, well, you can always find me. I'm a consultant. (laughs) And this is where I'll jump in and say where you can find me. You can find me on my website. My website is Namaste Data. I really wanted to bring a name which brings my personal and professional identities together. So Namaste Data. I will read out loud the website address for anybody listening, but also I know it would be somewhere in the notes. So it is N-A-M-A-S-T-E-D-A-T-A dot O-R-G. So namastedata.org. That's the website address. I try to keep my website updated over a million cups of coffee so you can find the most updated information there. Or you can also follow me on LinkedIn and Instagram. I'm trying to keep those places updated as well. So you can always reach me there. I have a few newsletters that you can find me on my website. I call my newsletter Dear Human. I don't over-personalize it. So that means I have good information for you, but I'm trying a very authentic, human, loving, kind voice to reach to you and say that it's okay in building a good relationship with data. So please do find me. I'm looking forward to meeting you. Amazing. Thank you so much for this conversation today. I'm so grateful for you and for the work that you do and for sharing your wisdom with everyone here. 
Thank you so much for having me here. It felt like a dream come true after following someone and then being on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that means so much to me. I'm so happy to have had this conversation. Me too. All right. Wow. I appreciated this episode and conversation so much and learned a tremendous amount myself. Here are a few of the top things that I'm thinking about. Number one, it is so important to reflect on your relationship with data and explore your feelings around it. Similar to Mina's example with her relationship with money. Number two, consider the human experience when collecting data. Focus on transparency, ethics, and trust. And if you don't know how to do this, definitely look into working with a consultant like Mina to help you. Number three, Be intentional with data collection by considering the purpose behind it and how it will be used. Number four, strive for data equity by being conscious of the questions being asked and the reasons behind them when you're collecting that data. Number five, understand the power of data and its potential impact on individuals and communities. And lastly, number six, we need to be open to change and improvement in our data collection methods, even if it means revisiting past data. Like with many things, once we know better, we can do better. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Mina and our amazing sponsors, Kila. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you in the next episode of this incredible mini series. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.